0: Hello and welcome once again to Straight Talk, your intermittent podcast of political thought. My name is Scott Wyatt. Today we've got a continuation on the subject of income inequality. We've got Mike Nelson, Dr. Gary Latanich and Dr. Dean Flanagan is going to be on the show. So without further ado, let's get to the show. We've got uh, Professor Gary Latanich on the line. How are you doing today, Professor?
1: I'm doing fine. Just wonderful.
0: All right. Uh, we've got Dane Flanagan with us. How are you doing, Dane?
1: I'm doing good. Glad to have everybody together today.
0: All right. And we've, we've got, for the first time, uh, Mr. Mike Nelson. How are you doing?
1: Uh, doing well. We have clear weather after having pretty good storms and a tornado not too far from us, but we were spared, thankfully.
0: Uh, I'm glad to hear that. Ouch. The reason we're we're having this conversation today is uh, Mr. Nelson contacted us that uh, you th- felt that there were some issues when we were talking about income inequality that that you feel need to be addressed, and I thought it would be a good idea to get everybody on the line and and hear uh, what you have to say. So you want to go uh, ahead?
1: Certainly. The I want to make certain that as we are talking to people, talking to your listeners, uh, we know that those that are listening, you know, to your podcast, to your sources are going to be those that are most interested and that are most uh, dedicated to learning. And I don't want to miss an opportunity to share with them the importance and not just importance, but the urgency of these next few election cycles that we are going to have, we are at a tipping point in our economics where we can still salvage what has been, quote, traditional middle class economics, or we can continue down this path of, you know, turning our United States economy into, as Nick Gingrich, Gingrich claimed on the floor of the uh, U.S. House of Representatives, a service economy. And I think that is where a lot of our our listeners, our voters, those that are uncertain about how to go about the future, they're not understanding where these economic principles have been imposed on them, where these restrictions restrictions to their earning power have come from. And it, and it strikes me with a great sense of urgency that enabling them to understand that there have been legislative uh you know not just not just regulations not just tax cuts but in our tax codes and in our corporate codes and in our corporate business models that are severely restricting individuals uh, ability to earn an income right And I think those are the things that really people want to know. How can we stop this? Can it be stopped? And especially with the next presidential election, who is going to be a presidential candidate that understands these economics? And and is talking about the ways that we can rebuild our middle class because we have lost our middle class.
0: All right. Uh, Professor Latanich, uh, Mm-hmm. Yes. What What's the historical? I'm trying to phrase this right. What, what's the how, how has have we historically handled economics like this? I know at one point, you know, we, we were heavy into Keynesian economics. And then mm-hmm. sometime in the in the 70s, I'm assuming that there was a transition to the, more of the of the Friedman model of economics.
1: Yeah, the late, with the coming of Reagan, conservatives ascended to power in, in Washington. But the Keynesian argument that government could control the economy ran into a problem when they couldn't they couldn't figure out what to do with the cost push inflation of the late 70s. For the first and only time, we had both high unemployment and high inflation, which uh, we had never seen before, and the government was kind of stumped at to what to do about it. Raising taxes would kill the inflation and create more unemployment. They didn't want to do that. More government spending would have solved the unemployment problem, but worse than the inflation. And they weren't sure what to do. And so the government was kind of paralyzed. And Reagan got elected with the argument that government was the problem. Uh, The problem was productivity. And we needed a massive tax cut that would stimulate productivity and kill the inflation. And since then, and they demonized. Government as being too big. Taxes were too high, too much regulation. And we entered this conservative era starting in the, you know, with, with the Reagan. And what we've seen is that none of those policies that Reagan pursued, the tax cuts or the deregulation, has really had any impact on the middle class, but it has really worsened income inequality. Yes. We didn't raise the minimum wage like we used to in the past. Our unions were demonized when Reagan killed Patco. The industry realized that it was uh, open season on unions, and there's been a precipitous decline in unions. Right. And so if the government's not going to raise the minimum wage, or we're, we're going to let unions decline, where's the push for wage growth? And the Fed was insistent that inflation never get above 2%. So every time demand started to rise, and we saw wages go right. up, what did the Fed do? <clears throat> they raised interest rates. During right. inflation, and that killed off the wage growth, and so we've had some very hard times with uh, workers not being able to get any kind of wage hikes.
0: Now, the the way the way I understand it as a layman, we didn't reverse our course in the economy really until we had a new technology in in the world, and that being the internet, and its consequential being opening up the market. Am I am I correct in that? You know that it took. It wasn't it wasn't Reagan's economics that turned the country back around. It was an actual new technology.
1: I don't know uh, that it was really new technology so much as it was the idea that transportation costs fell like a rock after the Vietnam War with the invention of chain-rice cargo. You know, all of a sudden companies could transfer technology overseas, ship products way back to the United States, at a very low cost, and once China became part of the World Trade Organization, multinational companies realized that, hey, price competition in the United States meant that we had to find low-cost producers, and now transportation is not a barrier to entry. We can move our factories over there. Their workers are intelligent enough to use our technology, but we can ship the products back here at lower costs because the transportation costs now are far lower than our labor costs, and to survive, we have to be a low-cost producer. That means produce overseas. So my big thing would be that the biggest problem we face now is that consumers are terribly price conscious. And given that capital is mobile and transportation is cheap, you know it's hard to be a wh- high-wage nation manufacturing products when you can do the same thing overseas and ship it, ship it back for half the price. Right. And that's a conundrum that no economist has yet figured out an answer to
0: well let me ask ask you it, this mr nelson uh, do I'm, you think that one of the better approaches would be as far as uh like corporate governance laws
1: absolutely in a in 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 a hundred percent agreement to to dr latanich on his on what he has gone through I also can point out very specific uh, legislative occurrences that have increased almost exponentially these loss of revenue as far as quote middle-class income when you look at bringing china into a production model one of the things that we did not compensate for whatsoever is that china as a communist nation is a 100% subsidized labor force and even though it is you know extremely cheap to ship over to them and to bring back we brought them into the WTO World Trade Organization but the World Trade Organization has basically no teeth when company or countries subsidize and, quote, take over a market. You've heard the term dumping product onto the market. And in a, a uh, let's say, a, a, a fair game, you would have penalties that would be entitled by the World Trade Organization that would restrict. But because the United States, as the leader of the World Trade Organization, and with the group that has that jurisdictional power being a select group out of Switzerland that basically takes years to ever come to any type of a remedy, China has offered billions and billions of dollars in subsidized labor, in subsidized building their plants. And given American companies 10- and 20-year contracts, where they pay no taxes. They pay nothing the government over there subsidizes it and we did nothing here to keep that from flooding us with quote cheap pro- cheap products and when you look at what could we have done in the late 90s we had the Again, as Dr. Latanich had referenced, in 1981, I believe it was, when Reagan first became, uh, first took over in administration, one of the very first things that he um, uh, instituted was called the White House Council of Economic Advisors. That is supposedly a dedicated group that works on legislative policy except that they have decided that, well, American corporations don't need to be responsible. So in the, late ni- in the late 90s, they introduced corporate lack of responsibility for a better term. And in that, they had five main points. We used to have a definition of what was called a stakeholder. And a stakeholder is, number one, the employee of the company, number two, the customer of the company, number three, the product the company puts out. Number four, the community the company uh, is based in. And number five, the country of that company. That, that policy advisory council said, no, let's change our corporate mission statements or allow com- corporations to change away so that they then become only responsive to shareholders. Right. Shareholders are completely different from stakeholders. Shareholders are those that own stock. The C-level executives of the company, the board of directors, and the profits, and they, and and this was done in a legislative and a regulatory oversight manner to allow that. Right. So not only one do we have a, a a wide open subsidized China, and in old Keynesian and in old uh, even pre well in parts of. Uh, the Chicago School of Economics, as you had mentioned about uh, Friedman and Hayek, they recognized that tariffs on goods that were being subsidized were a good thing to keep those costs leveled. We did none of that, and now that we're—that's why Trump is trying it now. But it's too late because we already have the spigot's already turned on. You can't re, you can't unring the bell, but changing our corporate mantra or our corporate legislation back to where we have corporate responsiveness to be to its employees and its customers and its product and not just those that own stock and those that are board members and those that are on, and C-level, which is where all your executive pay and all your benefits and dividends go. What is the term now? Eighty-three percent of all stock in the United States is owned by the top 10 percent. So you can't say that just because we're – having a good stock price as a shareholder that were great and wonderful because that means that ninety percent of the country isn't participating. And though that's a that's a, a very specific legislative fix and there are several things in that vein. The again that nineteen eighty one era when Reagan first went in, the minimum wage had been tied to and had been overseen by our by the the Federal Reserve. Remember, the Federal Reserve was basically originally formulated to say or originally built to say, we'll never have another recession because we'll regulate our monetary system. That's failed. But Reagan went in and said, okay, let's take the minimum wage off of. It had been indexed to the federal level of poverty level and each time the poverty level and you know it's almost unheard of anymore for the term COLA cost of living adjustment that is what used to be under the purview of the federal reserve so that we would keep up with our minimum wage Reagan took that out of the federal reserve put that into the legislature to make it a political football and by by the time uh, Clinton took office in 1993 in January of 1993 from the time that, in 1981, when it was detached, it was 110 percent. The federal minimum, the federal poverty level was 110 percent higher than the corresponding minimum wage in just 11 years, and we haven't gotten any better since. Those are legislative fixes that can be accomplished. If we were to instantly change the responsibilities of the corporation by legislation, and index minimum wage. What would the corporational response from American corporations in today's global economy? Would they all flee and just cease to be American companies? Quote, want to just ship their goods here, but not be based here? Or how would we answer that? Mm-hmm. There is there is some very distinct language in our tax code. If you, uh, and I, Dr. Tanish, I think I'm right. It was what the 86 to 88 legislative period where we, where we did redo the last time our, re, our tax code and took it down to somewhere around 1400 pages, uh-huh. simplified it, so to speak. But now it's 86. back to what 21,000 pages. Is that right?
0: Uh, the, the tax
1: laws in 86 were improved tremendously, it was made more equitable. And simplified, it was considered to be right. the best reform we had in decades. Um, yes, uh, and I think I think Dr. Dean, in order to in order to answer your question of what would companies do, here is a question that I that I would just like to throw out out to everybody and ask everybody to think about. You have American companies quote that are freely traded on American stock exchange quote that are owned by American shareholders. And yet 80% of their employees are not U.S. citizens and, and, or don't even work in the United States. Their products yeah, aren't American. Their, 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 their workers aren't American. But yet we're subsidizing them. They get the full benefits of our bankruptcy protection, our financial regulations, our bailouts, our oversight. They get all the benefits with absolutely none of the costs. They're living scot-free. Those that are, well, that's a regulatory change that can happen. Well, that's why I brought that up is that they're essentially global already or foreign in reality, but, quote, U.S. in spirit, why would is it going to hurt us, i.e., are they going to pick up their dolls and go home, as my mom would have said, when they don't want to play with us because, or do they, do they bear the burden and enjoy, the as you say, the privileges that... The U.S. court system, the U.S. defense, the inspector quality control that we have in place to make, in essence, competition somewhat fair um, as far as equal products or equal products and not just the name only, that would keep on in the American stock exchange? Would you move? Because, as you just said... The United States is the powerhouse in global finance and protections. And I would say, no, they will not move. They will pay higher taxes or they will pay higher wages or they will do those things because there is no other other country or no other regional uh, economic power that, they, that gives them as much protection and as much uh, consistency as the United States financial system. We're in it. We're the best big dogs. Why would they leave?
0: It seems to me like there are instruments we could use in law to uh, forbid any company from just, you know, picking up stakes and and moving.
1: One of the things that has been suggested about corporate inversions, companies that leave the United States for tax purposes, uh, Robert Reich has suggested that if a company wants to move their headquarters to Ireland, that they no longer would benefit from U.S. Commercial law protection or protection exactly. uh, from the Justice Department, uh, and a lot of times when companies are being treated unfairly, they get they have the privilege of suing in American courts. Right. And Reich has suggested that if companies want to take their headquarters overseas, that they would lose that right to sue for protection in U.S. courts, which would be a big blow to them. Right. And it's his opinion that for that reason alone, companies would not want to take their corporation overseas. Terms of, uh, in terms of the number of workers the company has, uh, as, long as, the, as long as the company is registered, has its corporate charter in the United States, it is uh, an American company. It can have all of its workers overseas, uh, but if its charter is in Delaware, um, it's an American company. Right. Ownership is, the company's attitudes these days is, we're multinational. We have stockholders from everywhere. Our charter may be here, but our business is global, and they think globally. Right. Um, now, you asked the question, you know, if we raise wages, would, would the companies pick up and leave? Well, the, 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 question, the answer to that basically is how rapidly. If you matched wage hikes in any industry with their productivity, what you would find is that their unit labor costs don't rise. If their unit labor costs don't rise... They're, we're not at a competitive advantage before a wage hike as we were, as we were before. Uh, now, if we raise them too rapidly, that might create a problem for us. But if we raise them just with productivity, we really should be safe. And the, and the other thing that is, is a good look, outlook for us is that China is going to be facing some very drastic labor shortages in the near future. They are a rapidly aging society. And what companies are gonna find is that labor costs in China are gonna be rising rapidly. The question is where
0: will they move? Well let, um, let, Brazil. Let me ask a question here. Is is the the biggest impediment to change in our system coming from or the US regulations or I contend it we've got more of a problem getting any change done because of the World Trade Organization.
1: If we're talking about if we're trying if we're talking about trying to build a middle class or to end inequality, the biggest problems we face is just a, a super how should I say this a favorable opinion towards corporations. We do lots of things that are anti-worker. We refuse to raise the minimum wage. We refuse to index it. Okay, we've cut the tax. The top marginal tax brackets. if we would raise the top mar- marginal brackets on incomes above, let's say, $2 million, just to talk, and, and raise the top right. marginal brackets to 90%, there would be very little incentive for companies to pay their workers more than $2 million a year because right. most of it would be taken back in tax. It would put, effectively put a cap on corporate, corporate salaries. And if you went back to the pre-Clinton years where it was illegal for a company to buy back their own stock, the two biggest drains on corporate revenue today are executive salaries and stock, buy- and stock buybacks. If right. you take them away, companies would be less resistant to paying wage hikes because it wouldn't dampen their stock prices. And isn't there uh, also in that, in our tax code also, is that bonuses – and especially those to sea level, they're not in the same tax brackets. They don't have to pay. They can, they can just write the lump check without the same consideration as if it was part of their salary. And one of the things that always aggravates me is that if any one of us were to go out here and hit the Powerball lottery, we know automatically that half of that's going to be taken in taxes. But yet a well, CEO that gets a $20 million bonus – and he's only going to pay a marginal tax rate on on that. Whereas, if it was paid back to the workers, that twenty million dollars would raise the the, the old saying, uh, "the rising tide lifts all boats." Uh, mm-hmm. You would have more well, money in the in the economy to spend, and therefore more more and you know and you build it back from the bottom up. Yeah, I mean you need to end, to end the carried interest provision of the tax law, which allows them to get income treated not as wages but as as a form of interest. Uh, you also need to uh, uh, companies give their employees uh, their executive stock options. So these are not treated as expenses and so it doesn't show up in the book as a reduction in revenue. And so the companies would prefer to do that uh, and then you can buy the stock at some price at a much earlier time period and get a huge capital gain which when you cash in the Stock is only taxed at half the half the earned income tax rate. So you need to eliminate, you know, the stock options you need to uh, end the corporate buybacks, which would help. Um, you could also expand the earned income tax credit, which would be a benefit. You could also have, there's a proposal to have the government be the employer of last resort. Go to any community and have the government hire everybody who's unemployed for whatever the community needs. Daycare workers, Healthcare workers, park maintenance, it doesn't matter. Hire everybody who's unemployed, pay them the government minimum wage of what they want, 15 dollars an hour. And then if industry needs more workers, you can have them. Right. Just, go to the in, just go to the private sector and say, "Hey, look, I know you're working for the government at 15 dollars an hour uh, as a tutor in the public schools. I would like to have you work for me. Would you willing to work for me for 19 dollars an hour?" And every time the government would raise the wage on the on the jobs they hire, private sector would have to match it or not get the workers they needed. The government could basically set the base of the wage level anytime they wanted if they would act as an employer, last resort. You could also have a situation where we ended contract labor. How many companies are allowed to treat employees as contract labor? Companies will hire workers for years through through private employment agencies or as contract labor, they get no benefits. We could change the labor laws that says that after six months, any full-time employee must be made any full-time worker must be made a company employee, subject to all the benefits. You wouldn't have these contract workers working for a fraction. Um, you could right. have wage insurance. You know, where people who lost their jobs would get a, would have an insurance plan that would pay them a, a portion of their income. Until they found another job. What else? You could allow guest workers in this country. Now we have illegal people working. And what happens? Companies pay them terrible wages knowing they won't complain because they're illegal. So let's fix the illegal labor problem by granting these people guest worker status. Once they're illegal, companies can't pay them substandard wages. There's a lot of things and, you like, could do
0: what were you if you wanted
1: say? to improve wages.
0: What were you going to say, much?
1: i was just going to say and they are doing that more and more and if you look at arkansas senator tom cotton's quote immigration reform he's trying to double the number of h1b visas quote guest workers and those are in direct competition with our own employees and our own citizens that have gone to our own colleges the original basis of that was in the 1990s was very well versed in this because I was sitting right in the middle of it. We had a natural gas crunch. Our natural gas uh, resources had not been expanded since basically the seventies where we got, you know, and especially here in Arkansas where Murphy and, and Stevens produced Jerry Jones. And we had, you know, we had a great, big, nice natural gas boom that, production capacity maxed out in the mid-90s. In response to that, and I cannot remember his name still to this day, but it was a Republican representative from the state of Pennsylvania, introduced what was called the Professional Workers Guest Worker Visa Program. And it was specifically uh, designed because Saudi Arabia had been undergoing, of course, thanks to United States subsidies a natural gas exploration, and the world's best uh, PhD-level engineers and architects and field operatives in the natural gas field were in Saudi Arabia. So we opened the door to say, okay, we will bring in professional workers because we need these to teach our workers how to build new natural gas. And you had the farmers in, in the 1990s in West Texas, the Great Plains, they used natural gas for food production because it was it, it runs runs their pivots, their watering irrigation pivots. They were mm-hmm. all based on natural gas because natural gas was the cheapest. They went from $3 a cubic foot to $12, 14 $15 dollars a cubic foot in two years. They started losing money hand over fist and were screaming, do something about it. By the early 2000s, that same representative from Pennsylvania, before he passed away, said, I wish I had never done the legislation because it's been so corrupted. And I'll give you the, still right now, today, I have a good friend of mine that works in the financial industry in Dallas, and he he competes every day with HB, H-1B visa workers that are basically brought in from India or China or Korea or Iran or Palestine or Lebanon, they come in in our education program, high school graduates, to get a bachelor's degree. They're given seven years under the education visa to get a, quote, U.S. education degree. They're then given a six-month hiatus, but they're sponsored by corporations. They are brought back in under the H-1B visa and they're given six more years they're called professional workers but they're not these are high school basically high school students that have come in earned a degree just like your son or my daughter or your you know just like our kids have but they don't have to pay them the same level and they can subsidize they they get basically a subsidy on their education they don't have to pay out of state tuition and things like this and they're guaranteed a job sponsorship what you end up having is you have an, an American that went to college and got an MBA or got an electrical engineer or a chemical engineer, a bachelor's or master's or even a doctorate, and they're competing against bachelor level 20-somethings that have been brought in and are given preference to be, because they can pay them within, as long as they're between 25%, of a quote U.S. citizen's wage, it's and it, it's a direct competition to that citizen that went through our education system, paid for it himself, and now is competing against them. And our Senator Cotton is trying to double that number, to up to four from 480,000 to 900,000 each year that we bring in to do that. These again are regulatory things; these are legislative things that are going on right under our nose. And even just, what, last week or week before, Rand Paul, uh, a senator from Kentucky, introduced another bill to reduce even further potential for uh, any company or any group of workers to, to unionize by saying, oh, it's all just free choice anymore. You don't have to do it. It's, it's a, it is a very concerted effort to keep those that are benefiting from this system even more benefiting. And holding back the wealth that could be distributed in amongst our own uh, our workers, our own people, our own everyday people are getting, you know, no benefit from their education, from their location, their regional. And, and these are things that we need to be urgently working against these continuing eroding of earning power as individuals. So, what well, I'm hearing you is that there's just extremely multifaceted nibbles that the U.S. called deregulation uh, allowances for choice of workers that, like the, the big word here, is foreign subsidy competing against our own unsubsidized educated workforce. So those coming from other lands, educated as workers or those coming in even uneducated um, as field hand workers are substituting for our employees or our citizens as employees is that correct am i putting that together correctly That, that is exactly what i have witnessed in a in just everyday modern you know companies Uh, that this is an ongoing practice. Three of the largest of those contract uh, contract companies are, let's see, there's Cognizant, Tata Consulting, and, oh, there's another one that starts with an A. And there are multiple lawsuits against them for discriminatory hiring practices. But yet, you know, and if you look at Facebook, the United States' fastest-growing company over the past 10 years And yet they use contract consulting in Arizona. They've hired 200, let's see, no, they've hired 24,000 in the past four or three or four years to do the, I don't want to use the word censorship, but that's what it is. That, you know, they they scan Facebook for these, you know, for, for obscene posts and things like that. And there's a huge article. I think it was in the Brookings Institute that I was reading on last week or week before where it talked about, you know, these are people that are doing the exact same Facebook jobs, but they're doing it out of Phoenix, Arizona, for 28000 a year, and that's all they get, whereas a normal Facebook employee out of Silicon Valley, their their compensation package is in the 200000 range. And why is this being allowed? I mean, why, why were they giving preferential I gave entry into the United States. It was an educational, it was the United States basically as long as I can remember or or I've not found a a general or or specific origin, but in general, we've always had uh, education opportunities for foreign students. I mean, I remember back in the 1990s when I was playing baseball at ULR, um, there was a, a contingent of Saudi Arabian students you know, even then, and so we mm-hmm. had educational visas because we have no problem with having one of the best education systems in the in, in the world. The issue of that is when a company can sponsor an education visa, meaning they can pick up an 18-year-old out of India or out of Iran or out of Korea or out of you know uh, Japan or wherever, and they can sponsor an educational visa. With the, what's basically a job opening. Get your degree and come work for us. That then allows that education visa, that's a seven year visa. But they don't do, you know, they don't do master's or PhD level. They go to work for the company. They still have that seven year visa. Once that visa expires, they're first enlisted in, in the line to get. The H-1B, which is a professional visa. So basically, they're saying that over an 11-year period or 13-year period, excuse me, that your real strain, there, the cost of a company, let's pick a number here, is at least 25 percent less. Well, Yes. how much percent less? 25 percent. Yeah, yeah. I, was yeah, I yeah. was, yeah. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to overspeak you, but I was going to agree with you. Yes, 25 percent less is typical.
0: What kind of tax credit do these corporations get when they do that?
1: That again goes to the 1990s in the Clinton tax packages where we had a dedicated job description. And it said basically that companies can take credit for, and this is what created our quote outsourcing, that a company can take tax credit for all of its workers, regardless of their citizenship or their country of residence, they can deduct the same costs for their labor. There is no there is no distinction prior to the 1996 or 98 legislative session, whenever that was passed. There was a distinction between uh, job in the United States by a U.S. citizen at this particular tax rate uh, you get to write it off or a quote contract worker or a guest worker that fell under a different purview of tax brackets that was eliminated in the 1990s and that is where outsourcing Quote, hey call sears and ask them how to work on something and you end up being talking to someone from india right that's where that came from that has not been changed that is still there well, that... So they still get credit for that. That worker, they can pay that worker within twenty five percent, and you will see horror stories that they, the company will tell will tell, the U.S. citizen that has a master's in electrical engineering, hey, you have to train this replacement because we're shutting your division down and we're just going with this with these contracts. Right. It's and it's it is becoming worse and worse and worse.
0: Well, that that was also about the time when manufacturers started contracting with temporary employment agencies to get their fill their manufacturing jobs. They're paying the temporary employment agency, say fifteen dollars an hour for an employee, and the temp is only pay, paying the employee seven or eight dollars an hour. Doctor
1: Lukonis. Any idea what percent of the. US workforce is now employed in quote unquote the gig fashion or gig economy fashion meaning temporary without benefit and therefore I would assume without opportunity to even consider unionization yeah it's about as I understand it if we're, if we're talking about the what's called the uh, non-standard work arrangement workers, Sixteen percent of the labor force is these kind of do-it-at-home, gig workers, self-employed contract workers for companies, um, about 16 percent, and that's up from about 10 percent in 2005. Oh. So it, it's growing. England that recently just lied. passed a law saying that Uber workers are, co- are company employees. where well, the United States mm-hmm. are treated as contract workers, subject to no benefits. In England, the laws has changed. They now are have to be treated as regular employees, subject to all the benefits that a regular employee would get. Well, that's on top of you know, I guess you say squeezed um, employment with foreign educated you know, foreign foreign, foreign, foreign citizens underpaid and then big economy without unionization and I would assume most foreign employees have no opportunity to consider such that we're looking at a good chunk of our economy that the productivity is underrepresented the potential productivity and therefore tax bases and benefit costs to our corporations think about fact that the share the stakeholders in these companies not only have they eliminated just from a regulatory standpoint, now the companies themselves have found ways to divorce them such that they have no responsibility of them in name and fact, not just in name, because there's traditional employees that the generation back was. Right. The, yeah. the worker who Lot of mentioned, you know, had benefits, had job security, had expectations of continuing employment, either from a union job or just... From the fact that in mobility of the workforce. I mean, they just didn't take the factories from Kokomo to somewhere else in 1950. Yeah. They didn't have any other place to put them. <laughs> yeah. And they've also, companies have now learned that uh, there's a new industry strung up, uh, brought up. These called these temp agencies. So a lot of times manufacturing firms in Jonesville need workers, they'll go to StaffMark and they'll hire somebody. They'll work full-time at these factories, Uh, But they will actually be staff market employees, not at the regular factory. So they don't have the pension that the regular factory has or the health care. And since the staffing agency gets a portion of the wage, the net wage these people get is a lot lower than the regular workers. And companies have realized that, hey, I can outsource some of my labor to a temporary agency and minimize my labor costs and my benefit packages. Right. This is something that's grown up in our country, and the government hasn't addressed the issue. A simple fix would be to say, fine, Staff Mark, you're providing employees to some of these big factories. You have to offer health care. You have to offer a pension plan, which would then force them to go back to the company and say, look, the asking wage is no longer be $12 an hour. We have to have at least the same as your workers $16 an hour or whatever.
0: Oh, yeah. These can
1: be fixed. Uh, they just haven't done it.
0: I remember back in the 80s when I worked for a temporary agency, they didn't even pay unemployment insurance. So when my job ended oh, no. there, I, I didn't even get unemployment.
1: Another thing we could do with the labor laws is the current labor laws are tough to unionize. Send in your, your votes for union. Then you have to wait for the National Labor Relations Board to come and conduct uh, an election, an on-the-spot election mm-hmm. that they can monitor. It takes 30, 60, 90 days to do this. <laughs> well, yep. In between then, what do you think the company does? They fire all the union organizers. Yep. Okay, And even if you do vote for the union, the company doesn't have to negotiate. They can stonewall as long as they want. And if you remember the Greyhound strike. Greyhound bus drivers struck for a, the company, refused to negotiate, and they just fired all 6,000 of them and replaced them. If you would pass what's called the Employee Free Choice Act, which has been stalled, that law allows workers to organize simply by sending in their postcards and if a majority send them in it's a union and the company must negotiate if they don't negotiate it goes to arbitration there's no just walking away from the union that would make unions much easier to organize and once places where states have passed laws like this union organizing grows and wages grow so you could you could even pass the the uh, Equal Rights Amendment. You know, it died for lack of votes. They're trying to revive it again. If you would pass the Equal Rights Amendment, paying women less on the face of it would be discrimination. If right. you had two people making the same job and the woman made less, would automatically be discrimination. You have to wage the female wage. That would be a big benefit. So there's lots of labor market things you could do to uh, improve wages and incomes. But you have to have legislators who want to do it. And that's hard to okay. do because where where elections are run.
0: All right, let, let me ask go sound a simple question, but it's going to be more more in depth, I believe. I believe we're all in agreement that that there needs to be legislative fixes that have to be mm-hmm. put in place before we can see a vast improvement in income inequality, correct? Okay. It's taken
1: 40 years for this to regressing. Right. It will take more than one it will take two decades to undo it, but it can be undone.
0: Okay, my question is, when we're talking to people who are candidates for office, what do we need to ask them, what do we need to be hearing from them in order to know that, that they're on the side of the angels when it comes to, to getting this stuff fixed? We need to hear
1: that they will support. If this was me, and I wanted to get elected, and I wanted people to see that I was going to benefit workers, I would propose raising the minimum wage and indexing, so it always goes up. I would propose the government being an employer of last resort, so in communities where there was high unemployment, the government would come in and pay workers to do whatever the community wanted done. Let the community run it, I will pay your workers this $15 wage. I would change the tax code so that all income is taxed and that dividends and uh, capital gains aren't taxed at half the rate. I would raise the marginal rate on very rich incomes to, I don't know, 70, 80 percent. Okay? And you don't have to have four or five tax brackets, you can have hundreds of tax brackets. That doesn't make the system more complicated. Deductions and exemptions make it complicated, but then brackets is nothing. You could – buy. you would tax why just everything. Why have to use a bracket and not just use a, a simple slope equation or some other line equation with basically two or three factors and go from there? You know, you can define any Cause, line. Because the brackets are how you make the taxes progressive, okay? You tax, you tax marginal rate extra each extra marginal level of income at a different rate. The computer calculates the average that you'll pay over the course of the year. But if you only have three or four tax brackets, those tax brackets can, can have a low and a high range of hundreds of thousands of dollars. You have the same person making very radical different incomes paying the same tax rate. There should theoretically be a tax rate for every different dollar earned. That would be equitable. It would generate more revenue off of it. And if you had no tax deductions and exemptions, You know, one flat exemption, let's say, like the flat tax, exempt everybody Mm -hmm. the first $30,000, and after that, everybody pays X percent of their income. But we lose so much money through tax loopholes that uh, the government can't fund the programs it needs. And we also need to end this argument that we're deregulating the economy and making it more productive. That's a scam. The only, time, only thing that accomplishes when you deregulate is you kill off consumer protection.
0: Right. They're yes.
1: deregulating the mercury levels in rivers. They've allowed coal dust to be dumped in the rivers. They deregulated the, the um, EPA is allowing chemicals to be used that are damaging the teenagers. All these deregulations don't increase productivity. They increase profits at the expense of consumer safety. And so I would make a big deal to them about, hey, look, you're being harmed by deregulation. Uh, It's just consumer protection. What do they do? They change the rule on fiduciary relationship. The new rule is that financial advisors do not have to act in your best interest. That's crazy. That's crazy. Those are the kind of deregulations they're doing. And the last thing we, we should consider, we haven't done it yet, but think of Alaska. Alaska has a permanent fund. Taxes are collected. Uh, on oil extraction, and every citizen gets X amount of money each year from the permanent fund. And that extra money has not led to people not wanting to work. Given that automation is killing jobs, it's time to consider something like Friedman's negative income tax, Where a birthright, mm-hmm. citizens get a check from the government each month based on something some productivity growth, some level of income, because we're approaching a day when we won't need everybody working. We won't need everybody working full-time. So if you don't need all your workers and all of them don't have to work full-time, are you condemning some people to living in poverty forever if they can't find a job or a full-time one in a society that's
0: as rich as ours?
1: Companies make lots of money. They need to pay their fair share of
0: taxes. Do you think we GE, should?
1: Apple you, have paid no taxes in years.
0: Do you think we should tax these manufacturing robots?
1: Yes. When robots It's a capital, take, when yes, a take, capital take, tax. Yes. Yeah. If, if, if you automate a job and you lose the worker, fine. You still pay the same taxes that you pay contribute. if it was a worker. And that way, I read it and I don't understand it completely, but the Longshoremen's Union realized that automation was coming to unloading ships, and they had a productivity provision in their contract. So as productivity rose to automation, the companies had to fork over to the union dollars based on the productivity, and they distributed it to the workers. Wages that didn't go up. We have the money, and we allow so much of it to go to up people who don't spend it. That stagnates demand. If you could somehow redirect corporate revenues to workers, they're going to spend it all. The economy would grow faster. And if you get to a society where you don't need everybody working, then we have to find a mechanism where people are given money from the government as a citizenship right because our society is super wealthy, super productive. We have companies who don't need everybody. We can't have a society where there's a few people working and the rest starving. If you want to sell products in the United States, you have to contribute taxes But everybody has the right to an income a guaranteed income of some sort and there's there's two definitions or two definition brackets that i'd like to throw in here while we're while we're looking at candidates number number one i I want to make certain that all all listeners and all educated voters realize the what the term middle class means the middle class has no you know definition it is a moving target but it can be exceedingly simplified it was originally the term was originally coined in the definition of tax brackets if you if all of us remember we're all old enough we remember lower lower class middle lower class upper lower class lower Middle class, middle-middle class, upper-middle class, lower-higher class. There were nine tax brackets. The, quote, middle class in Mm -hmm. statistics, it was defined as where 65% of the total population maintained 65% of the wealth. That was the definition of middle class. And at its peak in the late 60s and early 70s, it was a bell curve, It was a sine wave. It was shaped like a mountain, it was or a rolling hill, to give a visual picture. You had lower middle or lower lower class and lower middle class and upper lower class. That was that bottom 18 percent. You had upper or you had lower upper class, middle upper class, and higher upper class. That was the top 18 percent, and the middle class owned. 64% 64% of the wealth and income in this country. That's where the term came from. Because we have purposely done these regulations to reduce, to reduce earning power, to reduce, you know, to free-flow corporatism, we have flattened that bell curve so that it is no longer shaped that way. It is a ski ramp now to where you have wealth owned by 80% of the population that's nearly equal all the way across. Then you get to the top 10, 15, 20% and it's, and it's a geometrical or a, a arithmetic uh, 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 tail. It's like a ski ramp. Mm-hmm. That, that definition of middle class, people still have middle class values and that is what as a politician you will hear people often say well i'm for the middle class i promote the middle class there is no middle class in a definition anymore there are an in income definition there's only middle class values so that's always one of my catchphrases of are you talking about middle class values which is, quote, you know, our hard work, you work to get ahead, you, you know, you help out your neighbors, you you know, you be good to your company, your company be, be uh, uh, is good to you, you're good to your community, your community is good to you, you're good to your country, your country is good to you. Those are middle-class values. Those are things that we all can support. But when you go to looking at the economics, middle-class the very first year that Obama came in, that they, uh, somebody asked him directly, what do you think the definition of the middle class is? And he says, well, it starts about $250,000. And everybody made just boo-coos of, of, uh, you know, of, of booing at him, just telling him that he was an idiot. No, he's actually right. When you look at where does 65% of the wealth, where is that? And it starts mm-hmm. at 250000 and it's even higher now. When you look at the second, second thing that I wanted to, to make sure that we look at when we talk about uh, candidates and, and politics is there are five historically electorate blocks. In, in the United States, you have basically five electorate blocks. Number one, unions. Number two, teachers. Number three, farming community. And when I say teachers, I mean all of education. Number three, farming community, which is agriculture, which is the three Fs: fishing, forestry, and and, uh, uh, and farming. Then you have industrial, which is, you know, corporations. And then you have basically fossil fuels or the energy sector. Those are five distinct voting blocks that if you ever aggravate any one of those, quote, they typically have as a block the power to make an influence that has been a direct assault by the fuel industry and ganged up on the corporate industry to reduce the influence of teachers and farmers and unions because those three a lot of times if you remember quote historical uh, you know southern democrat those were southern democrats those were the blue collar workers those were the the heart and soul of our, quote, middle class, union, education, and farming. They, we have purposely taken away their, not only their wealth, but their political influence, and we have exponentially raised the wealth and influence of the industrial corporatist class and the fuel industry. You know, well, that's where the Koch brothers come from, that's, you know, the oil and gas and the, and, and fossil fuels. And those are those voting blocks have to be re we have to make those wealthy again. If we're ever going to stop wealth inequality, we have to rebuild unions, education and farming because they are the ones that are being purposely, you know, attacked and under assault and constantly remove their influence. That being said. With 13 different presidential candidates, I still don't know who I'm I'm in favor of. Still looking. (laughs) Well, it doesn't sound like to me that any one president or even, unfortunately, one legislator is going to necessarily make a difference. In fact, obviously, one legislator getting elected on the smaller side of the equation is instantly ganged up upon and discriminated against and easily attacked by the corporate money in the election. And, of course, therefore, to get the middle class an opportunity, we have to, quote, make the vote based on citizenship, not in the financial contribution to a campaign. A corporation should not be labeled as an individual and should not have the right of an individual. It's a immortal entity until it has a depth and definition of its own incapabilities, we're screwed.
0: Yeah, we we've gotta get rid of Citizen United. That's that's yes. the absolute imperative.
1: And and just to just to throw a, just to throw another lever on that one, I have argued with some of the ones that are the most vehement to support Citizens United, and they always throw back, well, then you have to take away the union votes. No, sir, you do not, because a union is a membership, and they can send out a postcard to that membership and say, Who do you support? and you can check the box, right. and you and the majority of who the, of that union supports. That's who they will give their their donations to. A corporation is distinctly different in that only C-level executives can make those host corporate-type donations, and they have no responsibility to the 80,000 or 100,000 or 10,000 or 750,000 employees. They are right. not representing those employees. They're only representing their own interests.
0: Right. Hey. The
1: corporate that, that's what I'm saying. Corporation is not an individual, so it shouldn't yeah. have the right to say how we govern it as an individual. One more thing I would add on. You asked a question about what you can do to uh, raise the income of middle-class workers. It, it, it's going to take a while to increase wage rate, but you can increase the buying power of workers by what the government provides to them. I'm on Medicare, and I pay $138 a month. You now, the question is, wouldn't lots of workers benefit by having Medicare for everybody? I have to visit mm-hmm. the doctor I want. I, have no, I no, have to have, don't have any recommendations. I have a much smaller deductible than I had when I worked, much smaller premiums than I worked. If everybody had Medicare for everybody, the premiums would be lower And the buying power of workers' paychecks, even if the nominal dollars didn't go up, would go farther. If we did something with making college cheaper, if we funded the first two years, that would mean that the amount of student debt that students have wouldn't be as great. Or if we eliminated the interest on student loans, why is our government charging our own citizens' interest to go to school? They could make grants, and the interest you don't borrow $30,000 to go to college, by the time you pay it off, you pay seventy or 80000 with interest. With a no-interest grant, you'd only pay the thirty. That would spread their income farther. You could expand Social Security. Incomes would grow. Very so there's good limit. public goods yes. you could provide uh, that would make the buying power-resisting checks go up, which would help in, 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 in lieu or until you can find ways to raise the actual amount.
0: Well, if they would. that
1: requires tax revenue, and we have to end. We have to stop. You have to win both houses of the Senate, of the House and the Senate, to pass legislation. And we have to end this idea that small government is good. As we saw with the recent shutdown, even when part of the government shuts down just for a short time, look at all the things started to fall apart. Yep. You know, small government only benefits people who are super rich, who have their boutique doctors, their own security guards and they don't need the government for anything. They control most of the wealth and most of the income, and they don't want to pay taxes. So we have to reverse this idea that lower taxes is good. We have to raise taxes on those who can afford to pay, even if it's a wealth tax, to fund the kind of social programs that we need to help people who are at this point making very low incomes. Cheap taxes equals cheap jobs. Yeah. Now, half of fast food workers are in public assistance. I mean, 20% Twenty percent of the nation makes less than nineteen thousand dollars a year, and you hear the news is always talking about the stock market. Eighty-five percent of the stock is owned by the top ten percent. Most families don't have four hundred dollars in their savings account. The stock market is irrelevant for most Americans. Oh
0: yeah. You know,
1: uh, and if they if they miss one or two paychecks, you miss your third paycheck. They start foreclosing on your house. You know, most families can't survive ninety days without paychecks. That's the tragedy of our nation now. And so we've got to provide not only more robust social programs, but you know, start thinking about how to give workers the power to raise wages. And that's going to require an election of not just the president, but both a Senate and a House that are of the same mind on how to do things. Because divided government gets nothing done. Well, it sounds like a good place to stop in some regards, Scott.
0: We <laughs>
1: covered, well, we covered the definition of hiring them income inequality previously and some tonight. We defined the players and the stakeholders, which really is all, everyone has to be at the table for their fair share. That's true. To have an economy and the government maintenance of a, quote, open market. I won't call it free market. We pay a hell of a lot to keep it as an open market. And we've discussed what income is and you to create the momentum without, I guess you say, getting down to analyzing legislative acts, which of course won't come till we have a chance to, I guess you say, dream the dream of controlling the outcome. Mike has brought many great, you know, uh, points of the view to um, this discussion. Dr. Latanish really appreciates his scholarly work and, uh, but Mike, too, in the historical review here. If anything more we can add? Please jump forward and add. But I think we can let the list. The listers got a lot of homework after our two podcasts to, right now to kind of put together where we can go from here and what to prioritize.
0: All right. I well, would just
1: like to add uh, two two small, uh, little blurb,s uh, to Dr. Lapanic's point on dr lieutenant's point on the medicare for all i would make the suggestion that everyone read the book written by tr reed the healing of america uh where he uh goes and puts our health system against uh germany and great britain and japan and the rest around the world in 2014 i believe it was from 2010 to 2014 the state of colorado Attempted to write legislation. They wrote it. I shouldn't say attempted. They wrote it to where $40 billion is what they the kind of the consensus that of their five and a half million Colorado residents, $40 billion is what they spent annually on health insurance and health care. And they went to a Medicare for all bill. It was defeated. And, and Dr. Reed, <laughs> Dr. Reed says, well, we, we was defeated because in the title we wrote it, a proposal to initiate $28 billion for universal health coverage for citizens of Colorado. And everybody felt the $28 billion was going to be on top of the $40 billion they already spent. It didn't. It was a $12 billion savings. Oh. <laughs> I would also like to recommend a very good book by Rosemary Gibson that is titled uh, China Rx. And in that, even though it's about the prescription drugs and how we are too reliant in our country on foreign uh, drugs, there are also very, very, very good economic principles and very, very good economic – there's a lot of good information, good research information, and, and it's very well sourced and very, very well cited. Um, so I'd just like to throw those two books out there. I'm getting no cut off of it, but I've just been very impressed by the, by the uh, writing of those two of those two books.
0: If any of y'all have a, a suggestion for any other type of resources, I can, I can put in the show notes. I would just like to ask both Mike and Gary, if, you, if there was one thing that you could ask a candidate for office, what would it be?
1: I, well, I get to I, I get to ask one candidate uh, in July. I've been invited to participate in a, in a in a training conference with Elizabeth Warren's campaign. I am in process of accepting that. There's only a hundred that are invited. I was kind of patting myself on the back for that one, but the one thing that I want to make certain that she realizes, And I'm going to be partisan on this where I try to stay economically. I try to stay nonpartisan. I will be partisan on this because it hits me personally that the Democratic Party needs to be the party that invites people to be part of our community. Will a candidate be not just say, okay, we're a big tent but physically go out and be representative of each individual in that district. Will they go meet them? Will they hold town halls? Will they be personal, personally responsible? And I know it's hard to do that on a presidential level because, but it certainly can trickle down. It certainly can be a leadership value that could start even at our president and go through all of our Uh, uh, state lawmakers and federal lawmakers and constitutional officers will they be open and receptive to a sense of community and in that sense of community agree to have dialogue even with those that we disagree with that is one of my big points and if i had and if i was asked to uh, i would have to flip a coin um there's only two things on my mind I would either have to ask them, are you going to support an indexed minimum wage hike to $15 an hour or universal health care? I'm not sure which I would ask, but it would be one of those two. Those are the only two things I'm interested in hearing from candidates these days is, will you raise the minimum wage and index it so it rises gradually? Or, if I had to pick one, it would either be that or universal health care. Um, are my, those, those, I picked one of those two.
0: Excellent questions. All right. Well, I think that about covers it. Unless anybody anybody has anything else to add.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me.
0: Oh, no problem. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, I've loved this conversation. I wish we could have more of them.
1: I appreciate both of you participating, and I look forward to inviting you to maybe a forum where we can put this in a public manner and not just have audible audio listeners. Think you both will. add a lot to our state viewpoint if we can you know get this exposed across the media and you two do an excellent job thank you very much for participating
0: thank you for inviting me absolutely yes sir all right y'all have a good evening all right well that was the show the continuing conversation on income inequality and something tells me it's not going to be the last one if you like it share it widely tell all your friends and family And let me know what you think. And as always, find you a candidate to get behind. Find you a cause. Find something you can do to make Arkansas a better place for everybody. And bring a friend. Every time I hear the people cry, don't you know
1: that the man is going to lie? I try to tell them that they have
0: a choice. Society,
1: all you yeah, all people, don't even use that book You're the weak of the weak.